That's it. Yeah. Because my uh, my youngest don't believe anymore. Why is that? I think for his own journey, like at some point, he just found it uh, not not believable, right? Heaven and hell, such a extreme binary <laughs> for a very complex life that everyone lives. Um, and then my second brother, he's a pastor, and so for him. You know, he still obviously practices and he really sincerely believes. And he's a very good pastor. Like he's definitely, when I was doing ministry and preaching, I always recognize him as a better pastor. Um, and so he's still somewhat conservative. He considers himself evangelical. His congregation just left the Baptist church. Um, but he doesn't have... Uh, woman elders, right? Woman deacons. He still believes in the complementary view, right? That, you know, man and woman are equal, but just like the Jesus, Jesus, the head of the church, so the man is the head of family. Uh, although he is definitely, uh, like I could converse with him. I could definitely say all my views, and so can my youngest brother, who's an who's an atheist. Now, uh, I guess I would consider myself agnostic, but um, if, yeah, I, although he hears everything, he still wants. You know his brother, younger brother, to and me, I guess, to to be saved and make sure we make it to heaven. <laughs> uh, uh, oh, you're you consider yourself agnostic. I'm sorry. You consider yourself agnostic. I, yeah, yeah, and so, yeah. So, like, the story of Jesus is still very compelling. Although the way I interpret it is different, right? It is not just Son of God who come to forgive, you know, die for our sins and we get forgiveness. It's such a, it's not even a biblical understanding. If you just read the New Testament itself, the full gospel stories, it's that's not how they present Jesus. Um, so his, yeah, his story is compelling, and I do think, I think we might have talked about this in many different ways. Like we still latch onto some story. And I feel like this story at least gives me, I don't know, a deeper connection to history uh, than the other stories. And that might be just because I grew up in the story, right? So, mm -hmm. um, but I don't believe in heaven and hell. Mm. Yeah, that, but neither do many people in the Bible. <laughs> For the most oh, part. Right? Yeah, like, you know, Abraham, Isaac, all of those people in the Old Testament, they didn't believe in heaven and hell. It's, it's, a, it's a later concept. It develops from when well there's different uh historical interpretations of it and you kind of see this eternal life coming up in like uh later in the post babylonian exile exile period so that's when babylon comes and they destroy the temple they take the jews out and so at that point the faith is no longer connected to land right i mean for a long time for them it was about the land right mm -hmm. the, the exodus was about going back to canaan um and then the the promise of God's faithfulness was that David's rule will, you know, will continue on in that land. But once that was gone, where do you put faith and hope? And so people think that that's when you see a language in like later in Isaiah and some of the later Psalms. Now the home is now up in the eternal life. Mm. But even then, like there was still this desire to for the Jews to return to Jerusalem. Um, so it was never fully separated from this kind of peace, shalom on earth. Um, 
So like even in Jesus' time, like when you talk about eternal life, John probably takes a lot of general life, but it was still many people thought that Jesus will restore the kingdom of David. Right? That was the goal, right? Not eternal life, but that was the goal. Um, but yeah, so like to pin like the centrality of the Christian faith on heaven and hell is now it, itself not biblical. <laughs> it doesn't take the whole biblical witness. Mm. Um, so, mm. yeah, I guess interesting. I mean, what Christianity is now isn't even mm. what it was then. So, mm -hmm. I guess what has changed. I was just thinking about like the Taoist hells and Egyptian af afterlife and Greek underworld, and they just all have their own like versions of what the other side looks like, which looks very much like the current shady world we're in. <laughs> <laughs> you bury all of the possessions with the people, you know? Uh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Anyway. Mm. No, I didn't know that you were agnostic now or that you didn't believe in a heaven and hell. Mm. What do your kids believe in? Do you have these conversations with them or not yet? I do. Um, so, like, what they believe in completely. I am, like, we have, I guess it was never uh, addressed that way, right? What do you believe in? Like, mm. uh, we just kind of talk about, uh, like, or maybe that's not the way to push. Like, uh, like, they do believe in, like, so that this creation is a miracle that there is a god um, mm. but as far as like is this god the the god that is being taught in the church uh they are questioning it um i do try to convince them like or not convinced i try to argue that you know again the story of jesus i encourage them to read other scriptures if you want but read read the christian bible uh and just really pay attention there's a lot of you know, powerful stories of god working in people's lives and and, and again jesus life is compelling uh, but do i do i would need them to believe in christianity no mm. so i i guess there's a freedom for them mm. and practically i don't think you need to believe in christianity to practically believe live in a li live a meaningful life mm. and a joyful life mm. yeah it's hard to say I've I've met so many not Christian people who are better than Christian people. So. <laughs> yeah, that was my whole question when I was younger. It's like, why are all these Hindu or whatever Hare Krishna so happy and so full of life? And the Christians I meet are horrible backstabbers. <laughs> but it's, it doesn't even have to do with what they believe in. It's just they use it to whatever ends they want it to serve, I suppose. Yeah. 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 Are you an agnostic or an atheist? Or do you yeah. even I haven't really thought that much about it. Yeah. 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 I don't so think I just... I don't even 
I guess I don't haven't even really thought deeply about whether or not there's a heaven or hell. It doesn't really matter to me, I guess. Yeah. So, like, practical atheist? <laughs> <laughs> like, pragmatically, it doesn't matter. There is or isn't a God. Uh-huh. Yeah, but I, but I guess I am pretty practical. I've turned practical over the years. It's just, we can die at any moment, so just be as good as you can. And I think we discussed this before, but I feel like we're sort of in given our limited circumstances and limited knowledge and our situations, we're in the best possible place we could be in, given our particular trajectories. Because we're generally, for the most part, trying to make the best decisions over the course of our life. So, yeah, just keep plugging away at that, I guess. It's my take. I don't know. I feel like those people who philosophize a lot tend to be the most depressed. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So what does, yeah, all that philosophical, philosophical thinking ultimately, like, what's the, what does it produce in the life that's lived, right? Because that's all we have. And and, and in many ways, I've become more pragmatic. And I think some of my decisions, kind of like my youngest brother, right? It's like, it's, it's, if it doesn't really impact what is lived now, then do we really need to spend so much energy believing in it or working towards it? Um, Mm. Yeah, because this is, like you were saying, all that we have. It would be a shame to waste these precious few hours on Earth on uh, thinking about the meaning of life and not live the life. So, I guess it motivates some people, gives them a sense of purpose and yeah, a coherence to their lives. So well, that makes sense. Yeah. But I also find that these coherent systems are quite dangerous, can be quite dangerous as well, because it's sort of closed. So there's always that outsider, or there's always someone you need to rescue, or there's always, you know, someone to blame. So it's, yeah, it's like a double-edged sword. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. We're... (laughs) in a totally different tangent too <laughs> no this is this this is what it's, it is right our podcast podcast is titled what do you want to talk about <laughs> so everything can be a topic and i'm glad to actually have this conversation with you i mean i talked to i've never really sat down and said hey what do you right now believe in i but i think i'm going to ask that question to my kids just to see where they're at and how they've kind of thought through um but yeah, I mean, I don't think I would have thought of that un- until now, when as I'm talking to you about these things. Mm. So, yeah, that's going to make for a very interesting conversation, maybe, <laughs> if they want to talk about it at all. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> Did you go to any other? spoken word or stand-up events lately so yeah i did one open mic uh, a couple of weeks ago and 
I think I would tell you that that was a ten minute one. That's actually that wasn't open mic. Actually, that was an invite. So, mm-hmm. and then from that, I do I did get another invite from October. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm I'm excited about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but there is always like, in the back of my mind, like at this pace, where can I go with this? <laughs> uh, and will I be happy just as a hobby? I mean, yes. I mean, it it provides me another way to be creative, another way to process things, right? Pro- you know, do it, process some of the ideas, turning it through the joke machine, right? The latest bit I've been working on is about being a young adult, like how we've created this young adult. It, it, it's a word that didn't ask, exist maybe 30 years ago, mm-hmm. but we keep slicing it up, right? Preteen, teen, older teen, right? Younger adult, old adult older adults. And mm-hmm. the thing about how, how well, I mean, there's, and then and then when you do, you really think about a lot, actually. Uh, so, uh, it's a way to think about a subject deeply. And I, my joke over there is like, I think we create a young adult just to make it socially acceptable for adults in their 30s and 40s to live in their parents' house in the basement with a girlfriend. Like, that's why we created it. Um, but around it, of course, you know, I, I hopefully I create enough energy and misdirection to come to the punchline. Um, but yeah, so I enjoy all that stuff, but I would love this to open to an, you know, a bigger platform. I'm, if I'm being, I always should be honest with you. <laughs> uh, I want it to be a bigger platform. I, I hope I could get a place where, you know, I can speak to more people um, in larger stages. That That is my ambition. Mm. Yeah. Fingers crossed. I gotta go for it, right? Yeah. Not, yeah. It's like just chipping away at it, and eventually it'll probably come that day. Yeah. Yeah. I must believe, yes. Wow. It's interesting how some people want to be, you know, on the stage in front of a lot of people. (laughs) Why, you never wanted to do that? No. No. <laughs> Sounds terrifying to me. <laughs> it is terrifying, always, no matter how often you've done it. Mm. Yeah. So, is it just vanity? No, I think it, it is like, you know, if someone really enjoys music, uh, I think it's like that. I, I do enjoy the experience with, an, with a crowd mm-hmm. where there's a connection. Mm. Uh, and and yes, of course, it's some vanity. The fact that like I am able to make some shifts, right? Uh, that that's some that feels like a great accomplishment for me. Mm-hmm. And we all want some accomplishments, right? Some sense of like I've done this, I completed this. So, but yeah, it, it's not just for the sake of like claps or laughter. Uh, it is an experience that I'm, I'm I want. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, some some do drugs. <laughs> uh, I I go do comedy. Mm. Uh, I just write books like that. So yeah, yeah. yeah. I think I would prefer to be read than be seen. Yeah. <laughs> so you are working on something right now? No, no, no. I, in just in theory. I... <laughs> <laughs> so you should write a novel or you have such a good ear for writing 
I don't know. But a friend did approach me to write an academic article. So I wrote an abstract on the plane. And it might be complete bullshit, but she's (laughs) going to read it and tell me (laughs) if it's delirious (laughs) or what. Yeah. What will it be on? So it's a really strange one. It's um, a call for papers put out by the Journal of Historical Geography, which I don't even know what this was. Um, So it's geography and history together. So it's history of how we've studied geography, I suppose, which I think is super niche. And then they put out a call for papers on archives as world making. So I guess in the context of historical geography, it would be like map making. So Mm -hmm. by the act of making and preserving and studying maps in archives, that's a kind of world making exercise. Mm. Where once you put it down on paper, you've already interpreted the space in a certain way. So there's critical geography as well, where now you think about how the people living on the land might experience the geography rather than a top-down view of how there's a geopolitical sort of dimension of how states delineate and look at geography and draw maps so there's like a bottom-up kind of approach that's been proposed as well um but that that's just a side thing um so this special issue on archives is world making is totally vague (laughs) and my friend is an environmental humanities scholar and i know something about archival studies and critical archival studies so i said i could write something about archives and records mm-hmm. and this friend can write something about world making and the environment so i don't know what it's going to be that sounds so fascinating though yeah it's super out there <laughs> but it's so true like it's something that yes most people don't think about like i've never thought about until you mentioned it but it is true i mean it, it like how you make a map what is the official map all of that is has you know like impact on reality right how we remember history and how we tell our national identities right i mean political fights are made over who makes a map mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. that's so fascinating yeah so this is looking even more broadly at just archives in general so and archives have been sort of servants of the powerful because the powerful decide what they're going to keep Right. But now there's more and more things like oral history where you go out and interview people who would never have been an interest to traditional historians or something. Like, you know, victims of the Rwandan gen- gen- survivors of the Rwandan genocide or something. So, and my friend has been studying this thing called Fatberg which is the name of a calcified mass in our sewage system in urban areas. So every the things that you flush, they're not always, you know, sifted okay. and disposed of properly. Sometimes they start to bind and form a mass in the sewers. Huh. So people have had to manually and with technology break down these masses of 
you know, wet wipes, <laughs> tissue, tampons, uh, you know, all kinds of just waste that we don't want to see. So we immediately flush it away and feel clean. There's a whole mass of things that are now almost like organic, organically growing <laughs> as a giant like iceberg of sorts um, in our sewage systems. So, and there was a museum, the Museum of London, that decided to display a tiny part of that. Oh my goodness! <laughs> yeah. So that was the Fatberg. That was the name they gave it, the Fatberg display. But in order to keep that alive and have flies and keep it kind of organic, they had to create a specialized container that had a similar conditions of you know humidity and air quality and all of that moisture and so on. So, you know, why is that worth preserving and displaying and is that an archive and is that a mini world that we're creating is it our world or is it beyond our world is it human or is it non-human is it you know is it present or is it you know the past it all kinds of questions so we're just examining the act of preserving this bit of human waste that isn't really human but it is so it's like organic and inorganic. It's all kinds of things. So, yeah, I'll stop talking about it. <laughs> no, this is really fascinating. It's actually mining of you know, the readings that I've been doing with my wife, <laughs> shall I say, as far as uh, her class uh, contemporary art. Uh, so, like there, um, I'm trying to. There's so many things that. Uh, I wanted to say, or maybe actually kind of throw that out so to hear your thoughts on it. Um, so, uh, like, in the after the A-bomb was dropped in Nagasaki, um, like a Japanese uh, photographer went there and took a bunch of photos. Um, it eventually became... Um, I don't know, the A-bomb in Nagasaki or some title, I, I forget. But it was a very, like, just simple, almost documentary-like title. Mm -hmm. uh, he was a military photographer. Uh, previous to the A-bomb, you know, he would basically do pictures that shows the the colonial expansion, like Japanese colonial expansion, and, like, victorious light, but also moral light. But when he goes there, he just takes the photos. He just... And he... he Probably not purposely, but just just naturally don't take photos as an artist or photographer, but almost like a documentary person, just trying to capture things as this. And then I think people there are in such shock, they don't really care about the cameras anymore, right? Mm. You're just there, uh, they go on trying to process what has happened. Um, but that photo he could not show because MacArthur and the military banned any photos of, uh, you know, after a bomb, uh, uh, after a bomb dropped in Hiroshima, Nagasaki. And then the U.S. military, there was a division um, where they were just to document what happened without the people there. So they wanted to document, like, what happens after the a bomb, but 
to structures and not people. Um, and it was only later that once MacArthur kind of um, lifted the ban that they were able to show the, the pictures. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is now like seen as an artistic work. Although Yamahata didn't take it as an art photographer, artistic photographer, he didn't mean it that way. Uh, in one sense, he just took it as an archivist. Like he made, he wanted to make sure that we don't forget or that it's not erasing the history. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, so as you were t- talking, telling me about that, just how what is allowed, what what pictures are taken, and what is allowed to tell the story, and how also that kind of shifts with the current political climate. Mm-hmm. Why is it, what's the artistic merit of these photographs? I think, well, I mean, that's the, that's the question, right? What is the artistic merit? Uh, is it because he was a great photographer? Uh, I mean, maybe, I mean, maybe he just had a very natural, you know, the, the natural artistic eyes to capture it. Um, but like he himself, when he describes when he was taking the photo, he, you know, he said that he kind of took it almost uh, subconsciously, like he wasn't trying to frame anything. He just, okay. but maybe the natural instinct kind of set in. But I think the very presentation of it is presented as artistic work because it was banned and censored. It seemed to be like one of the few photographs that kind of captures the very emotional impact right after the dropping of the bomb. Mm. Um, yeah, because yeah, you can say, you know, is it sort of, is it ethically questionable to just look, engage with these photos aesthetically? Yeah, yeah. are you gonna engage with it as, you know, evidence? and you know suffering with an affective element to it or is it going to be purely aesthetic um it can be both but it sounds like it's displayed more as an art form that's that is a good question uh how does it differ right just purely documentary photos Mm. and or as an artistic Yeah, I think I would hope that the curator of such an exhibition would um, consider all aspects of the photographs because, yeah, to me it sounds a little bit ethically strange to see them as just art, if that makes sense. Right, or or is it questioning or expanding the role of art that part of the work of art is to archive Mm -hmm. then yeah I mean there's political art I guess but it is it is different political art or politicized art depends propagandist art 
Right. Yeah, all kinds of flavors. Right. But but yeah, I guess art does document in a way as well. Yeah. The cultural, historical, social, political things of that time, they're sort of encapsulated in art. Sure. Um, I read somewhere about poetry being actually a precedent for, you know, a prescient of the future or something like that. Um, yeah, so sometimes I guess it transcends our current time. Or capture our times. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting, though. What are you, what exactly are you reading? You're reading about it critically, or as just the exhibition? It's a, it's a bunch of readings. I think that I mean, it's curated by the the teacher of that class, and she and it, you know collects collected from I think different uh, essays and maybe chapters in the book um but it, it's 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 trying to look into like what did uh how did art respond to world war ii and a-bomb like mm -hmm. those two like in a sense like it made a huge global impact mm -hmm. uh, and it's talking about we have technology that could where we could destroy our own cells mm -hmm. and then actually we also see that uh you know, human beings are capable <laughs> uh, of uh, you know such act, such an action, right? Where uh, even the civilized Europe committed these atrocities, you know, to each other. Um, and again, what what's lifted up like in the German civilization with deep philosophical traditions, even there, what could take place? Um, so. So, so you have like photographer who kind of captures it, uh, and then you have like different artists, like um, like the French. Some of the French artists, what they did was uh, they called it Kafkaism, and it's kind of going back to like you're talking about how they kind of archived or presented Fatberg. Is that what you said? Right. So. This artist would just use mud and dirt. Uh, what is left now after the destruction of war, like bring that and use that to make art. Like you could even now smell it. And mm -hmm. what he was saying is like, you know, this is this is who we are. Actually, this is in in trying to be aesthetic and using just materials and styles that is considered beautiful um are we not being honest right real um and so he brings these things and creates works that's very disfigured uh subjects of masturbation <laughs> right um and these as response to you know again world war ii and, and the h-bomb and are they legitimate responses like and can you actually go back to the pre-war kind of aesthetics at all? And it seems like if you do go back, then you're kind of denying it, you're erasing it, the history of what just happened. Yeah. So how do you make art after these again, technological dangers and uh, you know immoral uh, actions? Mm. So, yeah.
So it's interesting. I mean, and, and then seeing abstract art as America's way of kind of presenting their victory. That out of the World War II, who has won America as a new superpower, they could they could claim a moral higher moral superiority because mm-hmm. they're not one of the Europeans who, you know, they came in to save the world. Um, and then abstract expressionism was presented as such, where here is uh, United States, where there's freedom of individuals and that type of, you know, uh, principle comes out in this very individualistic, very authentic, each person, Paul, uh, Jackson Pollock, Mark Rothko has their own unique style. Mm. Um, so in one sense, some of the abstract expression exhibits that made its way through Europe was CIA, CIA funded. Mm. So, mm. so yeah, just reading about that. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's fascinating. Yeah. I was, I just out of curiosity, I attended this talk about um, Eastern European artists who in the same period as uh, the abstract expressionists in the US were also, you know, very active. They had a, you know, thriving art scene from the sounds of it. But the reviewers, the art critics, always wrote about them in a demeaning way because they were, you know, from the Soviet bloc or the former Soviet bloc later on. And it was like, oh, they're um, cheaper copies of Pollock and the rest. So it was always, you know, comparing them in a less favorable way to say, you know, we have the moral and uh, aesthetic superiority um, right. compared to the artists, these artists. Yeah. So, yeah, it was, it was interesting. I was, I think it was former, it was Yugoslav. Yeah, any, anyway, yeah. 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 So. The Eastern European art, Russian art, they were too controlled by the socialists or you know communist parties, right? I think that's how they kind of present their work. Um, oh, I think it was that Yugoslavia kind of had its independent-ish sort of state, and so it was straddling both powers, you know, sort of a thing of its own, and um, yeah, trying to walk that boundary, I suppose, and then they were developing their own art scene and it was never good enough. It was neither this nor that, something like that. I can't remember exactly now, but it was really interesting. Just the excerpts from the American art critics because they were so snobbish. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Did you want to actually talk about Silverman, or should we leave that to another? <laughs> no, no, we could talk about Silverman. Did, did you see it? Yeah, I watched it. I took some okay. notes. We should talk about it. Yeah, let's talk about it. I mean, even if it's just you know, what twenty more minutes, that's fine. I would love to. So, give me your take first. My take. Yeah, you said you took notes. So, did you like it? Not like it? I think she's sassy but relatable. Mm. Yeah. 
What do you, what do you think of her? I, I think just from a, like a technical point of view, just her skills is amazing. I think she has, she's very comfortable. She uh, connects with the crowd, like you said. She knows how to like say things in lesser comics would lose the crowd. Mm. But she's able to use not just like the content that follows after or the joke, but just even her body. Though she's controversial but charming. Mm -hmm. uh, she uses her body so well to help with the joke. Mm. Uh, so that's what I first like noticed when I was watching this special. Like, you know, when as I watch each con like different specials, you know, something stand out. Like, oh wow, this guy has amazing jokes that I've never thought about, unpredictable jokes, or that person, you know, does this or that. But yeah, with her, I I could see that it, it's the whole thing. Like she is part of the delivery of the joke more than any other comics that I've seen without being flamboyant, right? She doesn't walk around the stage. Mm. Like she doesn't draw attention to her presentation, body presentation, but yet she it is so important, central part of her joke. So that's that's the first thing that stood out for me. She barely moves. She right. barely moves though. Yeah, she takes the mic out when she has some audience member come, but right. come up. But otherwise, she's quite static. Yes. I mean, but but then at the same time, as you said, quite um, expressive. Still, I guess with her body. Yeah. But she changes tone of voice a lot. Yeah. Yeah, which reminded me of that um, Hot Pockets guy. Uh, <laughs> Jim Gaffigan. Yeah, just saying something as a whisper or as like a rhetorical question, you know, to sort of manipulate, work with the crowd to kind of make them think that that's what they think. Uh, Would you sell out your culture, Sarah, kind of thing? Or, yeah, yeah, just, yeah, says things that the audience might have mm -hmm. odd or... Stereo I like that she works with stereotypes. The complaining Jew. <laughs> Jewishness is a big thing for her, I think. For her yeah. copy. Uh -huh. yeah, and her punchlines are sometimes whispers, so the audience has to like lean in. Uh-huh. Yeah. So. That's that's what yeah, that's what I'm like. She doesn't follow your typical kind of setup punchline. Mm. She surprises you. Mm. So and, and even like there was one joke about oh uh, I'm near the denouement and then she looks at her paper near the end right and then she, she goes oh Jesus is coming back oh Jesus is coming on my back do you remember that joke <laughs> but she delivered it without delivering it right like she was reading trying to find out which places so that type of ingenuity. Like, mm. I, yeah. So, delivering a joke without making it in as a without without delivering it as a joke, but kind of again reading the notes and yeah, 
likes to play with words with like dirty sex jokes, I guess. <laughs> she is coming back, coming back. Water to come. <laughs> yeah. Come whole, Barbie's come whole, but it was like something, a spin on the words come and whole. It was come whole. <laughs> and then showing men their own sperm or something like that. Right, right. Like yeah. it's about how uh, it's already a live abortion, and if they can just see it, then they will make change decision. Then let's do the same thing. Yeah. Uh, put a poke through the penis <laughs> and then <Yeah>. show them <laughs> the spermatos, uh, how alive it is. Uh, then they'll think twice. Or well, I don't. I forget the exact punchline, but about no. Yeah, um, I like that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or I actually, what did you think about the meta jokes where she stops and says, I threw away, that was a throwaway joke. See, I, that's, I, that was creative when you could do meta jokes. Uh, I mean, I enjoyed it. Uh, or the, you kind of think half, most of the way through the joke that the sister is getting raped, but it was just that. Something was pulling down at her pants. But it was like, <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Had, yeah. yeah. Well, what did you think of those meta jokes? Um, well, I thought the rape joke was not laugh out loud funny, but it was playing with your expectations, I guess, creatively. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I like that. Yeah. I like that. Um, or... Yeah, the squirrel joke as well, where squirrels are paranoid cokeheads laden with anxiety, but that's how trees get planted, because they <laughs> uh, just hide their uh -huh. the acorns everywhere, and they can't find them anymore, so the uh -huh. trees are planted, so I kind of like that sort of unexpected twist, right. and yeah. Yeah, that, that is funny because of the image. Two disparate images you never think could go together. But once she brings it together, like you could see it and it's sensible, <laughs> right? Uh, and at the same time, it's like uh, not a grotesque image, but it is such a like, well, not, exag not exaggerated, but it, it is a hilarious image, right? Mm -hmm. To imagine them as coquettes. Uh, and then to make uh, like a insightful statement about how nature works. Gosh, that yeah, that's yeah. And also, she also plays with the audience's expectations of how dumb she might be. Like, oh, Danuma, you didn't think uh, right, that, right. that word right, or yeah. The, yeah. The, how that's how trees are planted, kind of thing. It's uh, like I know stuff. Yeah. You don't know if she really knows, but you know, it's, <laughs> it's woven yeah. smartly into her stand up. Yeah. Mm. So then at that point, really, like, it's not so much that she's doing jokes, it's really about her, right? It's, it's the way she could, I don't know, like, so, like, if you compare with, like, Ali Wong, right? That's her last name, right? Ali Wong. Um, the, the Chinese American comic? Mm -hmm. uh, I think so. <laughs> I always watch clips by her, so yeah. I can't. 
Yeah. Her jokes are a lot more predictable. Even though it's kind of based on her life, yet it's still like joke after joke after joke. And her, she is kind of providing maybe the table of contents, you know. Um, and I mean, they're good jokes. I mean, she delivers them, you know, well, but mm-hmm. it's still kind of like it's a joke machine like predictable there's a premise and there's a surprise punchline unexpected punchline or sometimes they expect a punchline but again the image that one draws she draw draws to the punchline it just makes you laugh mm-hmm. whereas with her i feel like it's really like you're drawn to her uh sarah silverman it's it's who she is that on which like all these things like you can laugh about uh in other places, like, y- you will feel so uncomfortable laughing about. And yet, she makes that comfortable because of how she presents herself and how you connect with her. Um, I-, I wish that I, I could like, put this in better words. I- I'm still trying to look for it, but I- that's right. Currently, that's how I could put it. Like, I feel like it is, it's, it's really, a, it's about her and your connection with her more than the, just the jokes. <laughs> Maybe that doesn't make sense yet. I have to I learn. Thought, to- wouldn't that also be the case with Ali Wong? They're all kind of personas. Uh, I think because I, I don't know that everyone could digest or like present Ali Wong's jokes. You'd have to be a strong female, angry Asian sort of character, which, I mean, maybe there's others, but there's a certain kind of, like, angry feminist that has to be presenting yeah. that joke. Yes, agreed. Yeah. Um, just like Wani Chang. So there's a persona. Um, but my sense is, like, so the persona is created again like so that's like the table of contents that kind of so maybe it's more like a transition analogy uh where in many comics the persona what might be like the theme and it's a bunch of collection of essays a bunch of collection of jokes and that kind of works because you've stated that this is the theme but whereas like i feel like with sarah silverman like it's a lot more integrated so so this could be just my perception uh so that again like uh, again like the meta jokes the kind of joke on herself as being less intelligent all of that feels a lot more like Again, it's more integrated with her. <laughs> Maybe. No. We don't have to stay on this. I mean, it's definitely long. more niche. Like, I think, you know, a Jewish self-reflective person... who can joke about her body as more specific than the other personas. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I, I'm trying to think whether or not it was more coherent, like together, because to me it felt very disparate, disparate, like random topics here and there. Yeah. yeah. But she held it together literally by saying, oh, put a pin in that, hold that thought, and then would come back to it. Which um, is another device. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, yeah, so the integration is not so much that, like, all the jokes, like, have some content-wise, but, um, and maybe it is just, like, it, it's, like, she is more skilled in using some of these other devices that other comics are not using. Maybe mm -hmm. that's what makes the perception. Maybe that is. Um, but, yeah, I think for me, I got to, it, it's my intuition, this is how I feel, as far as, like, how to explain it. I have to work through it. Um, but, yeah, that's that's how I felt. Like, she's a lot more skilled in that the whole self seems to be part of the delivery of the joke more than other comics whose persona is important but not as skilled integrated i don't know i, I just gotta think about that um, mm -hmm. or how, how to express that better mm -hmm. what are some other thoughts that you had about this special Mm. What did I write? It's a bit existential, speck of dust, dog's death. I think I think she's relatable because she sort of is kind of sweet. This is the sort of persona that she has. Yeah. Sweet seems sweet to the point where, where sometimes she jokingly wants to appear dumb, but then isn't. Um, and then the sweetness is measured with swear words. So it like draws a laugh when she says, I'm saying this in a less cunty way or something. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, like come whole and coming and all of this. She loves saying come. Um, yeah, so I guess I, it's charming in the way that she sort of kind of is like bro-y by putting things, putting some swear words in there, tries to make herself more relatable, I guess, that way. Yeah. 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 What do you think? But yeah, I agree with you on that. Um, I, I've seen female comics who does those type of, uh. Know, racy type of jokes about sex but then present themselves as trampy actually mm. but uh yeah so they you know they try to make it consistent like oh i could talk about this because this is who i am this persona is who i am but but then yeah she does the very opposite um which again i think is like, just um, her skill set i think she's amazing at doing that uh what do you think makes her charming and sweet? Like, what gives you that vibe? The way she talks. The way she talks. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. 
And she's also, you know, she doesn't dress like, oh, who's that blonde comic who dresses in really tight, small oh, dresses? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. She's like covered up, you know, yeah. almost like, uh, and she, I think, points it out as well, that she's wearing something just quite plain. Um, so wants to appear kind of like girl next door type person yeah yeah but yeah but she doesn't talk about what the girl next door would talk about right uh like that that joke about again jesus coming back or jesus comes on my back wow who would say that (laughs) and get away with it (laughs) Mm. that's not just about comics yeah, <laughs> and she does a lot of jokes about Jesus and and Christianity. Mm. Right. Um, Wasn't the person she invited up on stage Christian or something like that? Oh, what happened there? I forget the part. Okay, I, I can't remember now, but I think the person was religious or something. <laughs> I can't remember now, but yeah. It's good fun. Even though she says, you know, Jesus is coming on my back or whatever. Somehow it feels wholesome. Yes. I mean, that's that's amazing, right? How mm. she how she pulls that off. And that you would you would say that's that's wholesome. <laughs> yeah. yeah. She doesn't lose anybody. Mm. So yeah. Do you, you think that she's sweet? Like, is there a sweetness too? Right. What, what do you think makes her charming? I mean, it is. Uh, I think so, uh, she delivers it as if they're not jokes. I'm trying to remember now. Right. So. Yeah, I think, I, again, I, I don't know how to explain it. Like, I, she delivers it like they're not jokes. Uh, mm-hmm. And, yeah, like, even, okay, that's that very specific thing. Like, you don't feel like, so if it feels a joke, then it seems like you just try to get laugh. And then it will be considered just a cheap laugh. But, like you actually buy into uh, like this charming person, and I, I think it's the like you said the way she says it. It's it's a body language, and even the words that she uses, right? I think she purposely chooses certain amount, certain type of vocabulary words, and mm-hmm. so like the denouement is presented as if it's not something she would say, and it pre- points it out, but like. That's already showing how she purposely chooses a range of vocabulary words to present this charming. Yeah. Um, so in that sense, like you, you don't see it as again she's trying to be mean or it's just a thought that she has. Right? She has written down and she just has to say it. Mm. Um, 
yeah, I, I think that that's that's why it works. And so maybe again, this me going back to like, it just feels like I'm just there with, um, you know, Sarah Silverman, not yeah. the comic, but Sarah Silverman. Mm. It's just kind of fun to listen to, and she's yeah. yeah. It's like yeah, good storyteller. It's just like listening to random stories, like a friend would tell you. Yeah. Yeah, it's just pretty low key. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's kind of that's harder to pull off. Mm. Yeah, especially up on stage, because you have an expectation. The audience has an expectation, and you want to meet the expectation. And it's I think it's harder to pull off. Um, where it feels less like you're a comic and still be funny. Yes. Mm. Um, yeah. Have you seen anything by Trevor Noah? Any stand-ups by Trevor Noah? I think I've seen clips and I used to watch The Daily Show. Okay. Yeah. Well yeah, he I mean, he's great at the, the Daily Show. Like if you see a stand-up like, he is great at what he does, but mm-hmm. he's a stand-up comic. Like, he's telling jokes, even mm-hmm. though it's based on his story. He's telling jokes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think maybe part of it is that, again, rhetorically, Sarah chooses not to exaggerate a lot. Mm-hmm. Right? Whereas, let's say, Trevor Noah might exaggerate a story, constantly exaggerating more and more and more and more. Um, and maybe that's part of the device that again Sarah chooses. So again, oh, you feel like you're not in a. She's not telling a joke, but again, she's kind of sharing her thoughts. Uh, mm. Something to think, think of for me to think about. And you no, know, whenever I do go up, I always try to be as natural. But it's difficult to be very natural. Mm. So I guess at, that's another. Uh, aspect in which like I really respect how she, she does this mm-hmm. I think it's easier to memorize jokes and to present it than to be like so natural like her where she's so comfortable mm. well it's a practice natural it is a practice yes it is a practice natural but that is true yes mm-hmm. right.